1: Hello and thanks for joining us here for episode 628 with Daniel Scrivener. This was a fun conversation. We went deep into Daniel's career story, which is interesting and has takeaways. So it's a little bit more narrative, a little less prescriptive, but I think you'll love the flavor flavor that we came up with. So you'll learn one, how to develop new skills through self-teaching two, why Daniel left a dream job at Apple, and three, why you should always seek discomfort. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, please drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP628. That's awesomeatyourjob.com slash F628. Now here's Daniel's story. Daniel Scrivener is the CEO of Flow. Previously, he was the head of design at Digit and Square. He's worked for some of the most respected brands in the world, including Apple, Nike, Disney, and Target. And nowadays, Daniel advises world-class teams at companies like Lending Home, Empower, Trust Token, Designer Fund, and Notation Capital. He's an early-stage investor in businesses like Superhuman, Mixmax, Notion, Good Eggs, Burrow, Madison Reeds, Stance, Almanac Brewing, and many more. And he's been invited to speak at some of the world's most prestigious organizations, including Andreessen Horowitz, General Assembly, Techstars, Designer Fund, and 500 Startups. Big thanks to Daniel for sharing his wisdom with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash beawesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Daniel. Daniel, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you so much for having me on, Pete. Well, I'm excited to dig into this conversation. Not the least reason of which because you have the fanciest microphone a guest has ever brought onto the show. Can you tell us the backstory oh, why you have such a piece of equipment?
2: Yeah, sure. So <laughs> I actually started recording my own podcast a few months ago and was debating in my mind, kind of as everybody does that cares about audio, what sort of a setup to get the microphone that I use is the Neumann U87. And the short I don't have a great reason for that. I mean, just the only thing that I would say is in my life, if there's something that I enjoy, I never feel bad about buying, going for quality if I know that I'm going to use it for a really long period of time. And this seems uh-huh. like a fit into that vein.
1: <laughs> I hear you. Okay. Well, I love it. So I, I also love your story. So it's pretty wild in terms of, so you went from a, a dropout experience all the way to becoming a, a CEO with some exciting adventures in the middle. Can you please tell us uh, the story of your your climb and and maybe the most compelling lessons along the way. And, and, and we'll have a little back and forth as we do so.
2: No, sure. And I will uh, try to yeah keep it brief and feel free to jump in anytime. But yeah, I mean, as you alluded to, I definitely have an unconventional background. But what's funny is, you know, it kind of, it makes a ton of sense to me, obviously, looking in hindsight, but it doesn't, you know, when you said the words, the climb, it, I, I don't know why, but I don't, I don't feel like it was really that. Like, you know, I guess that just for a little bit of context the a few things that maybe will help kind of make sense of my journey is one I've always been a huge believer that if there's anything in life you're excited about, if you care enough about it, if you're curious enough you can teach yourself how to get good at almost anything. And so that's what I've done. And I started out my career focused on design, specifically kind of web digital design. This was back in the early 2000s, you know, I'm a child of the 80s and 90s, so grew up with the internet being a really exciting, cool, new part of my life. And the quick backstory is, you know, growing up, I was never attracted to anything design-related. In fact, I hated art classes growing up. I never considered myself a very artistic person. But, you know, so how I kind of stumbled into design, as I think about it, is, you know, I was getting ready to graduate early from high school, going way way back I ended up taking a course one summer to get some extra credits I just thought it would be a nice easy fun course about how to create HTML websites and back in that point in time you know creating websites now is a lot more complicated back then all you needed to know was HTML so I learned that class and I just got hooked on that I suddenly had this skill where I could take an idea in my mind be able to use HTML to build it. And then I could tell my friends, hey, go and visit this URL or hey, go and check this out. And they could pull it up. And that just seemed like this magical thing to me. And so the way I stumbled into design was, you know, I started making these websites. And thought I was going to be excited to share them with friends, but then nothing ended up looking like something I was proud of. So I just had this ah. moment where I was like, "I can make something, but I, you know, I want it to be cooler. I want to, I, like, I care about this thing. I want it to be nice." And so that led me to this question of, like, "Well, what is that?" And for me, it still is how I think about design. Is I think a lot shaped by that early experience. But my career now, you, I've been doing design at some level for 15 plus years. You know, I've worked at companies like Apple and Square and with a bunch of other interesting, cool brands. But for me, design is just the intersection of solving really hard technical or business problems and trying to pull it off in a way that you can create something that's singular. So ideally, it's remarkable in that it's unique and interesting and um, you're contributing a new note you know, to the melody. But at the same time, is, is beautiful and you're kind of pulling off an artful twist. Okay. Well, yeah. Why don't we Why
1: don't we get the broad overview first? Sure. And then we'll we'll dig into the details uh, ex- with one exception. Okay. So design. <laughs> I'm I'm not great at design, and I it's always so sort of kind of struck me as something. I mean, it's, it's funny, this, this shows about how to be able to your job and skills, learning and growth and development. <laughs> so I almost feel contradictory saying this, but it almost strikes me as something you're born with. Like you've got the designer's yeah. eye, like you've got the touch. And it's like, I don't think I have it. But then I, so I, I always outsource my design. And, and sure. I, I think I know enough to say I don't like that. Yeah. And I love that. And uh, you're and a great most client. People, <laughs> it's so funny like i love designers i love working with them because i'll tell them exactly as sometimes i feel crazy about my feedback like as i behold that image that part of it makes me feel like a little kid and you're patronizing me and they say oh thank you that's great feedback i was like really because i feel silly <laughs> saying that out loud and, and like you're gonna bite my head off but but the designer's like oh they're perfect i know just where to go based on what you've said it's like Great.
2: <laughs> no, and I think that's really all designers, I think, are looking for a lot of the times is just specific, actionable feedback. You know, as an example, one, probably the the vaguest piece of feedback that I've ever received, and it was while I was at Square, and it was from the CEO, Jack Dorsey, who was looking at a design I did, and said something along the lines of, like, it's not whimsical enough. And that definitely sent me down a, like, oh, my God, what does that even mean? <laughs> what, <laughs> Like, what is that? Is it the color? Is it the structure? Is it the... Do we, you know, I don't even know. I did not even know where to go with that.
1: <laughs> it's not whimsical. Well, because I, oh man, I, I think uh, for like corporate design, <laughs> you can. It's really easy to be too whimsical, <laughs> real yeah, fast. Sure, it is like, oh no, the, uh, I don't trust this at what I'm looking at at all. This <laughs> is <just laughs> the spinning uh, helicopter hat. <laughs> yeah, he wanted <laughs>
2: that, that dial cranked up, and I was scratching my head for a long time.
1: So let's start there. So, so learning design. That seems like a skill that's hard for people to pick up if they don't have some kind of aptitude for it. But uh, it sounds like you disagree. laid on me.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely disagree. So I think as well, just to take a step back, I have definitely worked with a lot of engineers that have led me to believe that there are certainly some people that probably don't get design, like don't understand colors, don't or just don't, you know, just kind of don't understand just aesthetics in general. So I think there's, you have to have some inclination or curiosity, or a uh, desire to do a lot of research to just develop a point of view about like what looks good and what doesn't. And what is that? And that that's something that's very, difficult to build up and I you know if someone were to ask me how do I figure that out I I would say I don't know you need to <laughs> watch a lot of movies read a lot of books look at magazines about architecture and car magazines and you know cuz I think that's one thing that's always fascinated me about it is great design is Can work in any industry, you know, whether it's an interior designer using color and shapes and symmetry and patterns and textures to create a beautiful inside of a house, whether it's an architect using some of those same tools to create a beautiful structure. What's interesting about design is kind of if you boil it down, it is extremely primitive in that it's largely shapes, colors, tones, moods. So I I definitely believe that anybody can learn it. And I think, you know, that for a little bit of the backstory there, you know, so I've now, like I've I've mentioned, I've been Doing design at some level for fifteen plus years, and every single year I continue to get probably you know a handful of emails from somebody that saw my work or listened to an interview that I did, who writes in and says something along the lines of like I'm inspired by your story. This is something that I want to do. How do I figure this out? How do how do I start working as a designer? And you know the reply I always write back is probably not the reply they were expecting. In fact, rarely do I ever receive a reply back. But it's just along you know along the lines of like in my The way I was able to do that, so if someone, you know, kind of understands my story and knows that, okay, I dropped out of college, so I don't have a college degree. I did that because I found this thing that I loved and I didn't want to put that off anymore. But... The way that I learned it was extremely basic, and you know, probably is just like hustle applied to trying to learn. But for me, it was very much like, I want to do this thing, so my approach was just okay, well, I'm gonna do free work to start. So I literally got paid nothing when I first started, and I was going to honestly anybody I knew, or anybody that knew somebody that I knew that wanted some sort something designed and typically that would be a business card or a logo or a website. And I would just do it for free because I I knew that to get I wanted to be doing it. I needed to have a portfolio so I can get better work, land better clients, eventually start paying. And so I really just worked my way up that way from literally the lowest level on the totem pole of doing free design work for people that I just knew. All the way to working for some of those, you know, some of the largest companies and most respected brands in the world. But it very much was a, I'm just going to take it one step at a time. And for me, you know, one thing that that ties back to, which we can certainly explore, is something that's played a big role in my life is what I refer to, what I call the growth curve. And for me, it's just this sense that I think the way I've been able to get to where I am today is by constantly trying to challenge myself. You know, and I've done that multiple times in my career where I've left really comfortable jobs, not because I wasn't excited about that work anymore. I was still very excited about the work I was doing at those companies, but because I felt like I needed a new challenge and I don't really know, I still don't know where that comes from, but there's something in me that once I've kind of figured something out, I get a little bit uncomfortable and, and restless. And so I'm always trying to challenge myself and kind of climb this growth curve. Oh, right. Well, so there's
1: a lot in there right there in terms of going out and doing it. <laughs> And and getting a lot of reps, it sounds like. Yes. Whether that's doing your own work or observing, you know, other work, and and I found that I think it is. It is interesting with design in that I've, I think it's it's taken me a while to get here, but like, and not that I'm a pro by any means, but it really is for me. It's kind of been uncomfortable for a while. It's like I just need to kind of I feel it first, and then I have then I have to articulate it mm-hmm. in terms of being in this yep. room feels awesome. I love it here. It's like, why? Uh, well, it, um, you know, but, but then you, you start to get a few things. and like I'm thinking like realtors, like when they're taking photographs of places. It's like, the top thing is, it's free of cluttered garbage. Yes.
2: <laughs> it's bright. It's airy. It's typically lots of white, lots of very, very clean white, yeah. stainless I, steel. And there's just not a lot of clutter, you know. Yes.
1: And I think that that that's huge right there, you know, in terms of and and that could apply to a space or to a, a layout or a website or or whatever. Like I think Ollie Gardner, I, I heard on a an unbounce event, uh, had a slide where someone was like begging, like Oliver Twist, "Please, sir, one more link shoved into this website." And it is like, no, you got to keep it focused. But okay, so by doing a large volume of work and by pushing and challenging yourself and by observing and reflecting. You got really good at this skill. so the here we a are very in story. long period of time. <laughs> <laughs> so now you are great at design and you have made some stuff that looks good. And where does the story go next?
2: Yeah, so maybe that was the kind of first formative part of my career. And I think for me, the, there was a moment in time that I still remember really vividly that at the time didn't feel honestly felt scary. And I I don't know if I was optimistic, but I was excited about it. But basically to share a little bit of the story, you know, so I start, I'm in high school, I take this class, I start doing work for for free, literally when I'm in high school, end up graduating six months early. A big reason why I did that was I just wanted to do more time doing design work. And I thought, (laughs) why spend all my day, you know, spend my day in school, if I can kind of do more of this, more of this work that I really enjoy. So I graduate six months early, you know, fast forward a couple of years, and I'm suddenly at the point, I'm in my early 20s at this point in time, probably 21, something like that, say. And I suddenly have this kind of fork in the road experience where I'm in, I am in college at the time, I'm about to finish my undergraduate degree, getting ready to kind of pick and transfer the university that I want to go to, which, you know, in my mind is kind of my parents' voices, they were always very much, you had to kind of go through this order. And one of those things that was non-negotiable was going to college. So I was like, okay, I know, I, I know that's what I should do, or that's what, what felt like I, what I should do. But the other thing I had on the other, in the other hand was I had at this point done enough design work that I actually was getting paid to do it and was really enjoying it and had enough work that I actually had to turn down projects. And so the fork in the road moment was Do I continue with college, kind of go to a university, really focus on that experience for the next two years? Or do I decide to take a bet on myself? And, you know, at that point in time, the way I was framing it, which is probably a little bit nice, is I'm just going to pause school for six months. I end up quitting the job that I had at the time. So I kind of sever all of those things so I could go all in. And my only goal was, let me see if I can survive basically doing everything by myself. So I would, you know, pitch clients, I would quote clients, I would give them estimates, I would uh, do the design work, obviously hand off the designs, do all the kind of clerical stuff and accounting stuff, I just did everything. And those six months, I ended up doing that. Initially, my goal was just to make it six months. I ended up making it six months. And it wasn't pretty. It, a lot of that was extremely challenging. It was extremely difficult. It wasn't all stuff I was super excited about. You know, balancing books or collecting invoices or following up on payment is not the most exciting thing in the world compared to design, but I ended up doing that. And what that ultimately led to was, you know, fast forward another year past that, I ended up getting offered a job to go and work for an advertising agency in LA called DDB. That led about a year and a half after that to getting offered a job at Apple to join their marketing communications team, which is when I moved to San Francisco, and I ended up being at Apple for three and a half years. And I credit that a lot with being my—if there—if there was any real world boot camp like education experience in my career, it was absolutely being a designer at Apple.
1: Hmm. Okay. Well. Well. So let's let's zero in on on these particular uh, sure. bridges, leaps, transitions to DDB and to Apple how do they find you and interview you etc it was
2: just like your stuff looks good come on down i mean it's effectively that's the gist but the DDB one i to be super honest I have no clue. I cannot remember if they found me, if I found them. I'd never really heard of the firm before, so that leads me to think well, that, they, that they probably <laughs> you know, they're they're a big advertising agency, but they're not. You know, they're not like Ogilvy. Like no one, they don't have that kind of brand name recognition necessarily. So that one, I'm I'm not sure. The Apple one is, I think, a little bit more interesting. So the Apple one was, you know, at this point I was I don't know mid mid twenties, probably yeah twenty five something like that, twenty six, and I for sure obviously apple was it was an incredibly exciting company and i think for a lot of designers it's the place you hope you can get to at some point in your career and so the way that kind of transpired for me is you know i have this job at ddb at the time in, in la so i'm commuting to la and i'm doing all that and i'm enjoying my work it's not the most exciting I'm not doing the most challenging, interesting, modern stuff, but I'm I'm doing it. I'm I'm an actual designer getting paid to do design work, which is which is crazy. And I end up getting an email from a recruiter at Apple. And you know, for those that don't know, Apple's definitely one of the companies that they have a large recruiting team, and the recruiting team just—they they really are looking for the best of the best or people that they feel like can succeed as designers uh, in some department at Apple. And for people that don't know as well, Apple is massive. Even in the marketing communications team, you know, I joined as a, a marketing designer. I worked on Apple a lot of apple.com projects and ended up getting to do a lot more interesting stuff, kind of in my time there. But Apple also has. Uh, motion graphics designers, which just do things like animations and transitions and videos. They have uh, graphic designers, which do the packaging and the identities for some of their products. You know, if you look at like AirPods Pro, like a like that name on the box, that's something that a graphic designer put together, letter by letter, playing with the kerning, playing with the weight, trying to get that just right. Apple so, has a huge department. So to kind of get back to the story, my first thought, honestly, was this spam, like, let me see where this email is from. Let me see if it's actually from apple.com. So I ended up looking, you know, looking at it a little bit, kind of look up the name of the person who sent it and it all checks out. And, you know, the way that worked initially was I was offered an opportunity to come to Apple and cover for a woman who was going on maternity leave for six months. And, uh, so it wasn't like, here you go, here's a full-time offer. It was, you know, we really like your work we would like to have you on the team to start. And this is also very common at Apple about, I would say probably 50% of the creative team is all contractors. So it's not full-time employees. So they, you know, that's like not uncommon, but I came in on contract and kind of, you know, my approach was I'm going to soak up everything I can, learn everything I can in these six months. And I'm also going to try to prove that I have a place on this team, that I can contribute and and I can be a good designer and a good kind of member on the team. That's a little bit of that story.
1: Hmm. Okay. Well, And so then, so, recruiter, I'm curious, in both of these instances, did they just not care? Like, it doesn't matter in the design world or for you in particular? Like, oh, you don't have a degree? No
2: problem. So, it's really interesting. I would say for both designers and engineers, number one, I think there are a lot of technology companies, it's definitely not a deal breaker. Like, I think Google, and I think they've relaxed this policy, but Google's definitely out of the norm in their requirement, which I'm not sure if they have anymore, but they, they have had for a very long time is a requirement that you can't, you know, get hired unless you have some sort of a college degree. But typically at technology companies and at startups, it doesn't matter. And the way that I've always thought about it is, you know, I've worked with the majority of designers I've worked with do not have a design degree. And I think that's part mm-hmm. of the problem is if you were to try to go get a design degree, you can get one, but it's, it's what is typically called a master's in fine arts. So you're going to be doing it for six years. You're going to learn all these kind of fundamental skills, which I would argue you could learn just as well on your own by teaching yourself. Cause it's just literally going and kind of design history, looking up work of famous designers, doing these mock projects. And, and part of that was the way that I thought about it was because back, if we go back to the part of my story where I was deciding whether to go to college or whether to take this kind of six-month bet on myself, definitely in the back of my mind was like, I can go and, and study design. But the sense that I had was I was going to be learning fake design. Like you know, So part of what you do if you go to a master's of fine arts program is it's kind of like going to business school and you do a bunch of case studies which are perfectly fine. They definitely help exercise some of your mental muscles of like, here's a problem. How do you figure it out? But it does it map to the real world job of being a designer. Absolutely not. You know, the most difficult things uh, involved in kind of being a designer at any level is uh, stuff like how do you gracefully take feedback that you agree with or don't agree with? How do you ask really great questions of another person's work where you're not you know, you don't want to offend them. You want to know, you want to know and respect that they put a lot of work and and energy and love into what they're creating, but you want to, you know, try to ask great questions to kind of spur and make sure that it's as good as it can be. And so there are all these skills in design that are largely very powerful, but very soft skills. And the only way you can really learn them is by doing it. And so that was kind of my perspective at the time. And what's been interesting is, you know, I've, had the opportunity to work with quite a few people that have a master's in fine arts degree. And I don't say this out of disrespect for any of those people. It takes obviously a huge amount of hard work to go and get a master's in fine arts degree. But did I think they were necessarily better day in day out designers? No. And I actually, and I think typically they would have kind of a a chip on their shoulder a little bit of, you know, well, this project's too good for me. And I think part of what helped me was there was no project that was too good or not good enough for me. Like I was excited to work on it and take it on if it was a design challenge. And I also just loved it. And I think that there's this kind of sense of enthusiasm and love that, I don't know, maybe I didn't get a beat out of me or in in college, but (laughs) was lucky that way. Well, and
1: that's a great perspective. You know, when, when you're at Apple, it's like, okay, I've to learn as much as possible in th- this place. And, and in so doing, your skills are sharpened. And so, so w- what happens next?
2: So I end up, at the end of those six months, I got offered a full-time position and I joined the Apple marketing, they called it, I don't know what it's called anymore, but they called it Marcom Internally, which was short for marketing communications. And, but basically at the end of the day, it's like everything that's not an ad on TV, that team did. So I ended up getting offered a full-time position Fast forward a little bit, you know. I uh, about three years later, I found myself in a position I found myself in a few times now where when I first got offered the opportunity to join Apple, I thought, Oh my god, this is it! (laughs) This is the place I've wanted to be. I can't wait to be on this team. And three and a half years later, you know, again, really like for me, I, uh, you know, I think a word that sums up a lot of how I approach the things that I love, which is both good and bad, but I think largely good is obsessive. And so for me with design, I just obsessed over it. I would think about it all the time. I would constantly be working on little projects to try to improve my skills. So like one of the things that I would always do when I was at Apple, I think this is great advice for anybody that has a job where it's like, you're going to get better the more you do it. And if you challenge yourself with things that are slightly out of your comfort zone, you're going to show up to work just a better all-around employee. But I would do things like, you know, when I first joined, I, I knew how to put together a layout. And a layout, you can sometimes describe that as like if you go to, I don't know, apple.com. A layout is what generally does this page look like? How do you chunk it out? What's the typography there? Where are kind of the images? It seems very similar to doing product design if you're doing a layout for a screen. So I could do that, but I, I sucked at doing icons. And icons are this thing that they're like, if you go you know, and you open up your iPhone, if you have one, or Android phone, if you don't, you look at app, you know, kind of the app icons or the little kind of graphics or symbols that you click on to get around an app. That's icon design. And it's both a very ancient form of communication. You know, it's based on like hieroglyphs and cave paintings. And there's a lot of those things that map almost literally one-to-one for kind of icons that we have today so it's a very old form of kind of communication but i was really bad at it and so one of the things i would do is just challenge myself to like i'm going to make an icon set of 30 icons i'm excited about and it was it's uh, the way these projects always go is they are absolutely brutal in that for 80% of the time, I'm just like, oh God, I'm not getting any better. What's going on here? Like, And I just keep chugging through and try to put one foot in front of the other again and again and again. And inevitably what happens is if I can just persist long enough, I'll finally get to a place where it all snaps into place. So I would do stuff like that. But about three and a half years in, I just had this moment where I felt like I knew how to be successful at Apple. And what I mean by that. And hopefully it doesn't sound you know, egotistical. But in my mind, you know, if you kind of take a step back and think at a place like Apple, you know, they have a very recognizable aesthetic. Well, what does that mean? That yeah. means that there are rules that inform it and that there's kind of like a construct and a framework for how they think about it. So if you can understand those things and get good at those. You can take on almost any project and figure out in time how to execute it in an Apple way. And so I'd kind of gotten to that point. And I had this moment where, again, I did this kind of flash forward, saw myself at Apple 10 years in the future. and thought that that would have been perfectly fine. And there are still times when I think back and wish that maybe i had stayed a little bit longer just because there were such incredible people there. And, and I learned so much and, and just enjoyed working with them. But I, I felt like that probably wasn't the best thing for me. And part of what inspired me in that was I, I alluded to earlier, Apple has a lot of contract designers. And typically, those contract designers they don't work at one company for longer than six months. And one thing I observed that I thought was really interesting and different about the best of these contract designers were were that when they were teed up a a problem, they could look at it from ten different angles, and so they could say, "Okay, I know." As an example, say something like. Take an example that came to out today. you know, so Apple announced these AirPod Macs like headsets that that you put on your head that literally are like um, headphones. And you know, so you would get teed up a project like, hey, here's this thing we're gonna launch soon. Figure out how to tell this story on a marketing website. And you need to think that through. But what I found fascinating about the people who had kind of a broad body of experience, was they could look at it from a bunch of different angles. They could do a dark version of that layout, a light version of that layout. They could do something that felt super like pop culture y. They could do something that felt really minimal and restrained. And I thought that there was something really special there. And so, you know, the kind of story I put together in my mind was okay, well, I think part of that is they just get to flex different muscles. They're constantly taking on different challenges. And so, what that led me to think about was, rather than stay at Apple, which would have been perfectly fine, you know, and would have been a, a great outcome. But rather than doing that, I think it's time for me to challenge myself. And so what I ended up doing, which was not at all common at the time, was leaving Apple, which when I was there, no one left Apple. You, you didn't leave Apple to go work somewhere else, especially as a designer. And you definitely didn't go to a startup. But I decided that I wanted to go and join Square. And Square at that time was about 50 people in size. It was in San Francisco. It was right in the city. I didn't have to commute. So that's how I made that leap.
1: Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, well, I'm going to push fast forward a little bit. So you went to Square, you did some great things, and now you're the CEO of Flow. How did that come to be, and what is
2: Flow? Great question. So, yeah, I'm trying to I guess, try to figure out how to back into this into this question. So. You know, if we go back a little bit in my story to kind of when I was really young, you know, one of the things I talked about was just this belief that you could, if you were interested in something, that you could figure out how to do that. And I give a tremendous amount of credit to my parents. And, you know, so growing up, we would do things like it was a very, it was very calm, probably happened once a month where we would all get in the car, drive down to the biggest library nearby, spend hours and hours in the library. And so one of the things I got, you know, we would all, I have two younger brothers. We would all, literally all five of us, we had a, you know, five person family. We would split out, all go to different levels, find the books that we were interested in. And we would spend hours there. And at that point in time, we were, you know, kind of young, say 10, 11, 12 kind of age. And so one thing I got fascinated, just hooked on that I was just... You can't really still put my finger on it and say why, was business and investing. And, you know, so in high school, I was reading books like The Millionaire Next Door or Rich Dad Poor Dad, or I don't, I can't even think of other ones, but like, you know, largely business and investing books that typically people aren't interested in, (laughs) let alone Mm. in high school. I've just always been fascinated by that. And that's something that still today I'm always it's another obsession I have is I just love learning from investors. Why? Because I think they're experts at kind of thinking through industries and companies and and which company has the kind of best odds of success and why. And I'm also really fascinated with entrepreneurs and and this, the idea of creating something of value that you end up charging more for than it takes to create, which still to me feels like, you you know, kind of pulling off a magic trick that someone's willing to pay for that, even though it costs less to make it, you know, that generates profit, then you can invest that in other other things, So I have these interests. So, you know, fast forward and end up leaving Square after five and a half years. At that point, the company had IPO'd. We were 1,500, probably 2,000 plus people at that time. Had an incredible experience. But, you know, for anyone that doesn't know, being at a company that goes from 50 people to 1,500 or 2,000 and from, you know... Having a little bit of venture capital money all the way to iPO in five years, it is a brutal experience it 's wonderful in so many ways, but it is also an incredibly trying and difficult experience So I got to the end of that was super proud of what I had done when you know when I was at square and and of the team that I was able to work with and helped build and but I knew again that I wanted to flex some different muscles, and so what I did leaving Square was I started kind of exploring things that were entrepreneur-like and investor-like. So I did I started doing some venture capital investing, some seed investing in companies. I now have a portfolio of over a hundred that I've built up, and I've learned a lot from that. I also started advising companies. You know, one thing in San Francisco that is this may be changing today. You know, San Francisco is changing quite a bit at the moment with uh, the coronavirus and just all the effects that that city is feeling. But at the time that I was there, you know, it's just packed with people that are like really good at what they do. that have really interesting ideas. And so what that means is there are a lot of startups that, you know, don't get design, but need design to be successful. And so I started working with some of those to help them think about how to think about design on their side. Fast forward a few more years and I ended up, so Flow is owned by a company in Canada called Tiny. And Tiny is like a mini conglomerate. You can kind of think of it like a mini Berkshire Hathaway. And I knew one of those founders, Andrew Wilkinson, for about 10 years. And this was, you know, going back is like very serendipitous, but going back to being a designer early on, it's a really small, you know, community. So we kept in touch and kind of, he was a designer, I was a designer. We would both kind of check out each other's work and and loosely stay in touch. Long story short, you know, fast forward a bunch of years in the future. And he now has this, this, uh, this company that has many sub companies flow is one of them. And so for a little context about what flow is flow at this point in time, it's a 10 year old company. We focus on task and project management software, largely for teams. And the way we excel, the way we kind of compete is by offering people a beautifully made product that is powerful, but it doesn't feel bloated. And it feels like something you're excited to work in. And the metaphor I use there a lot of times is like, oh, we work office versus a cubicle. And if you think about productivity software, a lot of productivity software is the cubicle land. And we try to create this beautifully crafted you know, piece of software that teams need. So we went to grab coffee. Flow at that point in time was not doing super well and they felt like they wanted somebody to come in and and take over and uh, someone ideally with design background that could kind of invest a ton in the product, create a vision for the product of where it was going to go from there. And so I joined Flow two years ago and over the last two years i have been working on turning around that company. All right. Well, well, what a beautiful tale from
1: making websites to you are heading up a company and are investing in as businesses that are really cool. By the way, I use superhuman for my email and I love it. I'm glad to hear it. So, wow. So, so what a journey. I mean, I've, I'm drawing my own little lessons about re- really digging deep and then challenging yourself and, and learning from the people around you and keeping those relationships alive. But but since we're actually already towards the our final minutes here, why don't you boil it down for us in terms of what, what do you think are the top do's and don'ts for professionals looking to, Grow a career and and advance in in uh, hey more fun wins meaning and money as we say here. <laughs> if you want more of that over the long arc of your career from age twenty to age sixty seventy, top dos and don'ts laid on us.
2: I mean, I could feel like I could talk about this for an hour, so I'll try to be as good, as concise as possible. Just because I think there's so many like one thing I think you learn over time by working in a lot of different companies by feeling, by being at different stages of your life at different companies, you know, it's just, it's a very nuanced thing. So I I will share, I think, what's helped me and people can decide whether that's useful. But I think the big things for me is, you know ideally you're doing something that meets that bar of obsession like in my mind you know i've got a 2 year old now we've got another one coming on the way this you know, right around christmas and with my kids i think the focus there is very much like i just want them to find something that is energy giving and life sustaining and i think if you can do that then you have this You know, it's almost like a nuclear fusion reactor where you have something that is just never going to run out of juice, and has. And the goal in my mind initially was I wanted to find a couple of things, and at this point in time, that's design, business, and investing that I can think about, obsess about, read about, and try to get better at over the long course of my life, and so find those things, and then. Pour yourself into them, and what I mean by that is, you know, I highly encourage people. And again, life's a single-player game, so you have to decide if this is applicable for you. But for me, something that's always been really helpful is, if you find that thing that you love, then pour yourself into it. And what that means is not only giving a hundred, you know, percent at work. But ideally also doing stuff outside of work that challenges yourself and develops muscles that are probably related to what you do at work, but might help prepare you for your next job, might help prepare you for the job you want in five years or 10 years or what you want to be doing. And, you know, and I think back to my time at Apple and I would work a full 10, 12 hour day, get on the bus, do this fun little icon project. I didn't do it every day. There was definitely days I was burnt out or I just needed to shut off my brain, but I've always had stuff like that going on the side. And I think, you know, there's, People have different opinions about that. In my mind, you know, I do the things that I love. And so, what that means is there's very little distinction between work and play or work in real life. And so, I think that blurriness is really helpful. And then, I think another thing that I would suggest is to challenge yourself. Like, something that I have distinctly found is, you know, that the majority of people I've worked with are kind of limit their own trajectory by the belief they're willing to have in themselves, the confidence they're willing to have that they can overcome any hurdle. And just this deep sense that if they're interested enough in something, if they want something bad enough, they can figure it out and they can do it. And this isn't a anything in the world you can have go for it type, you know, kind of pep rally or speech. It's just, I think the way to kind of think about it is this very soft, just in the background confidence of if there's a challenge that you see in front of you, believe in yourself, bet on yourself, and know that if you just keep putting one foot in front of the other, and you can find a way to push through discomfort, that there are really good things on the other side of that. And then the other thing I would say is, you know, really throw yourself into that growth curve. And, you know, I I almost try to visualize it in my mind of, you know, I always want to be in a place where I'm pretty uncomfortable. Ideally, if I'm in a job or doing something, and I'm committed to it. I'm really excited about it. I want to be. I want it to be slightly out of my comfort zone. And I think, you know, this role that I've taken on with Flow is certainly that. The role I took on early on at Square was certainly that. When I was at Apple, it was certainly that. And I think if you string together... Kind of subsequent experiences that step by step by step challenge you a little bit more, get you a little bit out of your comfort zone, make you do things that you don't feel like you're qualified for or you don't think you can really do yet. I think the trick there is like a lot of people have this idea that I'll do that once I can do it. And if that's the way you think about it, you're never going to do it. You just have to start doing, be willing to be bad at it, be willing to be uncomfortable, be willing to kind of cringe even at the quality of your work initially, because that's the price you have to pay in order to get better. Well said. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite book, something that you really dig? Yeah. Yeah. The book I was thinking about kind of before this interview that I think might be really applicable, maybe people haven't heard of, that I really enjoy is a book called Principles by Ray Dalio. And uh, for a little bit of background there, Ray is the founder of a hedge fund called Bridgewater. It's the largest in the world. They have a very different culture where they really try... To go all in on this idea of meritocracy, which is that there's not really any hierarchy. It's just kind of a a group of peers and anybody is as good as anybody else. And it's all about kind of the arguments you can make and the work you're able to do. And so that book is, the output of the last 30 plus years of trying to build this company. And it really is what what's in the title. It's a handful of principles that apply to working in groups and working as an individual. And uh, I'll stop there. I won't, I won't spoil it, but it's a thick book. I highly recommend you get the hardcover just so you can open it up and flip through it. You do not need to read it from cover to cover, but it is an, an incredible book. And a favorite habit. So something I've been thinking a lot about And this falls into the vein of like, I'm not good at this yet, but I see the value in it and I want to double down on it, is taking time to reflect each week. And this is something that I think if I were to go back in time, this idea of reflection and what does that even mean? Where you're kind of pausing, you're not doing any work, you're going to stop sprinting, you're going to stop focusing on your to-do list, you're going to stop caring about your email, you're just going to stop. Ideally, go somewhere where you can kind of think by yourself and sit down and just really reflect on how things are going at the moment. Like what is, you know, and for me, I try to do that once a week for at least an hour. I have somewhat of a structure. I have a few questions I ask myself every single time. Some of those are really simple things, but these are at the end of the day, really profound questions. Like, are there opportunities that, you know are around me or i have access to or i see that maybe i just haven't recognized and especially in my role now that's true all the time another one is are there risks i haven't recognized you know how are things going what's going well and what's not but i think taking time to reflect the kind of metaphor i would have with that is you know i think reflection is something that almost none of us do often enough the reason it's important is because any time in your life that you have a goal you need to be able to know how you're tracking and course correct. And what I found in my own life is I would reflect, you know, once a year, maybe by doing New Year's resolutions or once a month or, you know, once every six months. And that's okay. But I think if you can get that down to where you're spending a little bit of time, it can even be 20 minutes or 15 minutes once a week, what it allows you to do is just tighten up and keep you on track with where you're headed. So I would say reflection is big.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And if folks want to learn more or get
1: in touch with you, where'd you point them?
2: they can visit my website to see the podcast episodes I record, to see the stuff that I write at danielscrivener.com. com. can also follow me on Twitter at, at Daniel Scrivener, and they can learn a little bit more about my podcast if they're interested at outliers.fm and about flow at getflow.com.
1: Daniel, this has been such a treat. I wish you lots of luck with flow and your challenges and all you're up to. Thank you so much, Pete. It's been awesome. I love what Daniel had to say here with regard to challenging yourself and taking on those little side projects and just understanding that at first you're going to be really bad and lame at them. And that's okay. That's part of the game. And I like the challenge you made with regard to those icons. It was very specific and and kind of meaty in size such that it's something you could feel great about when you, when you finish it off. And it's going to take some time. It's going to keep you occupied and learning through a season, whether that's a month or a quarter or a year. And I gave you something to refer back to, which I find is great when you're learning, is that you're doing something over a period of time and then other experiences in the course of, of life and stuff you read and learn and hear and people you interact with uh, just help reinforce Force that and, and add new layers as you iterate on the thing. So I think that's pretty cool to have a side learning project that will boost you. Maybe it's learning Python or some sort of coding thing, or maybe it's a, a particular skill associated with social skills or oratory or whatever. If you have a specific project, it's going to take a while and you can know when you're done and then you'd feel awesomely victorious when you've accomplished it. I think that's a good move. So thanks, Daniel, for that. If you're finding yourself not challenged, uh, you can make your own challenge and keep on moving. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we have referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP slash 628.
0: And I look forward to catching you next time. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com.